common crocodiles of self-sabotage. Near St. Augustine, Florida, there's a place called the Alligator Farm. The Alligator Farm is famous for some mighty large animals. Before he died, Gomek, the colossal saltwater crocodile, was 17 feet 9 inches. His successor, Maximo, is a powerhouse at 15 feet 3 inches. I don't know exactly how big Hagrid is, but I promise he's impressive. Just like these massive animals draw our attention and fascination because of their size, there are some common self-sabotaging thoughts in our brains that can get stuck because of how large they loom in our minds. Number one, falling off the wagon. Have you ever had a day where you started off great and you had a nice healthy breakfast and things were going well through lunch? Then in the afternoon, you had a few pretzels and you realize that puts you over your calories for the day. Suddenly you're thinking, ugh, I had three pretzel sticks instead of two, and that put me 23 calories over my budget. The heck with it. You know, I really wanted potato chips anyway. And while I'm at it, since I've already blown it, I might as well have three cupcakes, a half a box of crackers, and three slices of pizza. This is all or nothing thinking. And it is so common that scientists even named it the what the hell effect. When you've made a bad choice or feel guilty about it, you give up on trying to eat well because... What the hell? The day is already ruined. Basically, we tell ourselves, I fell off the wagon. Now I have to start over from scratch. And then you vow to start, quote, fresh the next morning or Monday or next week or after the holidays, etc. All or nothing thinking is one of the biggest challenges of dieting. It's like if you were trying to teach your seven-year-old how to ride a bike, but your adorable little daughter tells you, okay, mommy, I'm ready to learn how to ride a bike. However, I don't want to fall. Not once. And actually, I need to be able to ride it blindfolded and have this feel really easy on my second try. Okay, ready? Great, let's go. (laughs) That would be ridiculous, but we expect ourselves to be perfect in weight loss in the same way. And we expect ourselves to be able to make lots of different changes all at once. I don't know about you, but that is definitely not how my kids learned how to ride bikes. In fact, we lovingly called our son Pepperoni Pizza Face for a while because he managed to scrape up his face on the sidewalk a few times. Anywho, Listen, weight loss has screw-ups. Expect it. Plan for it. Accept yourself for it. Let me ask you this. What do you think is the main difference between people who are successful at weight loss and those who aren't? It is not how well they follow their plan. It is not how many mistakes or slip-ups they had. The main difference is people who are successful simply kept going. That's it. Just keep going. Keep going and your goals are inevitable. Being able to not quit is the skill of weight loss. Quote, you don't drown by falling in the water. You drown from staying there. Steve Sims. Beating yourself up every time you make a mistake eventually leads to quitting. Instead of trying to be perfect, let's acknowledge two important things. Number one, you are the product of the things you do every day, not the things you do once in a while. If you occasionally do something outside of your norm, like eat a plate of cookies or skip a workout, that one moment won't have a lasting impact on your health. A splurge will only affect your progress when you keep indulging. Step number one is always forgive yourself. Then only focus on your next choice. Just focusing on the next choice feels less overwhelming than recommitting to your diet forever. Step number two, don't diet. Diets perpetuate all or nothing thinking because of the rules that it imposes on you. When you subscribe to all or nothing thinking, you're susceptible to falling off the wagon. 
instead of the diet mentality, give the next best decision mentality a try. You're never more than your next best choice away from being right back on track. Rather than going into a full-on screw it mode, just look for the next best decision. Maybe your next best decision is to stop with one Dorito left in the bag. Maybe the next best decision is to wake up tomorrow and make a positive choice rather than saying, well, I messed up on Friday night, so I might as well eat what I want until Monday. The next best decision can always be to tell yourself that your past does not define your future. Whether it was the last 20 years or the last 20 minutes, you always have a new opportunity in front of you to choose yourself. And the next best decision can always include loving yourself, no matter how imperfect you are. You don't need to wait till Monday. What's the next best choice you can make in the next 10 minutes? When I was in my phase of constantly seeking the after picture, I found that I would do well for about three to five weeks or so, but then something would come along and just wreck my progress. It could be a trip to visit family or someone got sick or a holiday, but it was always something. It was really frustrating to feel like I was gaining momentum only to have it derailed by some random thing. But after a while, I began to notice a pattern. These progress upsetting events always seem to come along after about three, maybe four weeks of quote, being good. And I began to wonder if maybe I was thinking about things backwards. I was thinking that the events were abnormal, unusual disruptions to my routine. But because they were so predictable, maybe they weren't so abnormal after all. I mean, life can be predictably unpredictable. That's life. It's understandable to have slip-ups when you're not feeling well or unexpected life events get in the way. It can be frustrating to feel like you're on track and have a good week or two, and then something like a trip or an illness comes along and wrecks all your progress. It's tempting to think that that thing that comes along is out of the ordinary. But another way to look at it is that life is full of periodic events that disrupt our routines. Whether it's a stressful week at work or family comes to town or the dog pooped on the floor. It can be helpful to think of those disruptive moments as a very normal and predictable part of life. And if these events are predictable, then you can plan for them. What if you assume that life and all its interruptions are normal? Life's default mode, without putting in extra effort, is to be less conscious about your food, exercise, sleep, health, etc. It's a lot like pedaling a bicycle. If you keep pedaling, the bike will keep going. But the natural default is for the bike to slow down and eventually stop and fall over if you don't pedal. There's no reason to be upset with yourself for getting slowed down by life's natural default. It's normal. You can be aware that healthy habits simply take consistent pedaling. You don't have to go very fast to keep the bike going, but it does take a little pedaling to avoid falling back into the default. If you were to make the assumption that something will eventually come along and disrupt your routine, How can you look at it as something that is expected? Then you can make a plan for how you'll keep pedaling your bicycle just a little bit to help you get right back on track. Just like a kid learning to ride a bike, you can figure out how to fail, make mistakes, slip up, and keep going. The only difference between someone who loses weight and someone who doesn't is that in the moment that they overeat or make a mistake, one of them keeps going and the other one gives up on themselves. The person who succeeds is able to be present and have a better conversation with themselves. If you hang on to the diet mentality and the idea that you have to be perfect, then you will fail at being perfect. The magic lies in the willingness to keep going until you figure it out, to keep going while you figure it out. 
How can you learn to become the person who is figuring it out a little bit at a time? Your secret weapon against all or nothing thinking is self-compassion. Self-compassion does not mean you're making excuses for yourself, nor does it lead to more cheat days. Even though it's easy to assume that you need to be hard on yourself to get anything done, we already know that self-criticism is strongly associated with less self-control and motivation. In other words, beating yourself up means you're less likely to change your ways. It's a lose-lose. On the other hand, being kind to yourself and offering yourself self-compassion gives you a greater sense of agency and self-efficacy and motivation, which is really just fancy talk for, I can do it, or at least I think I can figure this out. I'll try again. We all fall off the wagon. The key to getting back on the wagon is forgiveness and self-compassion, not guilt and shame or harsh criticism. Speaking of falling off the wagon, did you know that the phrase falling off the wagon comes from the 1890s during the height of the temperance movement when folks advocated for complete abstinence from alcohol as part of the anti-saloon league? The water wagon was actually used for sanitation purposes to hose down dusty streets. And let's just say this water was not purified Aquafina drinking water. So if you were, quote, on the wagon, that meant you were so committed to not drinking alcohol that you would rather drink the gross water from the sanitation cart than drink alcohol. Obviously, it's taken on other meetings since then, and now it includes falling off of your diet. But here's the problem with that notion. It implies that you're just riding merrily along and, oops, we hit a bump and I fell off. The phrase implies that something happened to you, and that secretly is self-sabotaging yourself because you're putting the power somewhere else outside of you. It's almost like saying, it's not my fault I fell off the wagon, we hit a bump. It's like you're at the mercy of your environment. You always have a choice. Even if that choice to act on your desires is buried in your subconscious habits, it's still a choice to respond and act on that urge. If it's a choice, then it's not just happening to you. You have control. When you do cave and act on the desire, because you will, and that's okay, It's tempting to say, I just fell off the wagon. It's no big deal. I'll get back on tomorrow. And while that's better than berating yourself, take a second to stop. Slow down and reflect. Never let a slip up go to waste. Your subconscious mind wants you to blow it off and not be aware of what might have led up to that event. The longer you leave it in your unconscious mind, the more it's going to feel like it's out of your voluntary control. Unravel the thread. Use your prefrontal cortex to pay attention and examine everything that went on leading up to, quote, falling off the wagon. Be like a scientist. Learn from your experiments. Quote, we can do hard things. Glennon Doyle. Often, falling off the wagon is not really the problem. It's the challenge of getting back on the wagon that trips us up. Have you ever seen a toddler learning to walk? They may take a few steps and then fall on their rear end. It's normal. It's part of the process. The next time they take a few more steps and they still fall down and they still get back up and try again. What if a baby had the same attitude that we take towards weight loss? Why can't I get this right? They would never learn to walk because they would give up after the first stumble. There's nothing wrong with you when you have a slip up or fall off the wagon. It is normal. Falling down and taking backward steps is an expected part of the learning process. The real skill is getting back up again. Learn the skill of getting back up and you never need to fear falling off the wagon again. Number two in our lineup of self-sabotaging thoughts is food labeling. Have you ever heard yourself say, I was bad this weekend? 
What the heck does that even mean? Did you rob a bank? Steal candy from babies? Sing Britney Spears songs at karaoke? <laughs> Let's just start with the words themselves. Good, bad. There's a lot of baggage associated with those words. When you label a food or yourself when you eat that food as good or bad, you're associating a sense of morality with that food. Along with that comes a sense of guilt and shame. If we take it at its most basic level, food, no matter what kind, is a collection of energy that impacts our bodies in different ways. Whether you're looking at a donut or an apple, the body looks at both of them as forms of energy. If we take it one step further, one is more nourishing to the body than the other based on the collection of nutrients in it. But they're still both energy. Not good, not bad, just nourishing or less nourishing. Of course, then our brains get in the mix and we make the level of nourishment mean something about the food or about ourselves when we eat it. We attach a sense of morality to food that is over and above whether or not it is nourishing to the body. What would it be like to let go of the shame and guilt associated with food and try and look at it from the point of view of more nourishing or less nourishing? Listen, food is not just fuel. Food can be a source of community, of love, safety, and shared experiences. That is why no food is quote unquote bad. Part of living a full life is enjoying the foods you love. But the idea is to eat them when you're actually hungry and you can truly enjoy them versus eating in secret or as comfort and not ever really tasting them. Most of us overeat because we're trying to solve our feelings with food. Give yourself the respect to know that your feelings are important and worth paying attention to rather than stuffing them away with food. Number three, most common self-sabotaging thought is, I don't want to let food go to waste. Mm-hmm. Have you ever finished a box of crackers or the package of cookies just to get it out of the house? Why eat it instead of just throwing it away? A lot of us have internal scripts that we learned when we were young about, quote, clean your plate or don't let food go to waste. Whether it's from messages that we got from our parents or financial insecurity, there can be all kinds of reasons why we think it is wrong to throw food away. And whatever the reason is, it can be hard to let food, quote, go to waste. Imagine you had guests come to visit, and after they leave, there's some leftover food in the pantry that is maybe less than healthy. Normally, it wouldn't be there, but you had it because the guests were visiting. It could be tempting to tell yourself, you know what, I'll just eat this to get rid of it and finish it off. I don't want to waste it by throwing it away. By the way, I have totally done this. So your choice is either A, eat it, or B, throw it away. Here's the thing. When you decide to eat it instead of throwing it away, you are using your body as the trash can. You are treating the trash can better than your body. The food is a sunk cost. In other words, the money is already spent, no matter if you put it in your mouth or in the garbage can. The money is not coming back. Putting the food in your body to get your money's worth does not affect your wallet. And also, by the way, it doesn't help your body either. 
Eating the food does not mean that you got more for your money. It just means that you put extra calories on your body. I tell you, the first time I heard this idea, it blew my mind. But why do we have so much trouble with the thought distortion around not wanting to waste food? How are we all so disconnected from what it means to have enough and to not feel compelled to have more just because it's there? By the way, have you ever heard of the Clean Plate Club? Maybe you heard Grandpa proudly announce on Sunday dinner, I'm a member of the Clean Plate Club. How about you? You going to finish that pork chop? It turns out the Clean Plate Club really existed. As World War I was winding down, Woodrow Wilson created the U.S. Food Administration to help ration food and make sure that the limited post-war supplies did not go to waste. Future President Herbert Hoover actually was tasked with leading the organization, and he created an advertising campaign promoting the idea to, quote, clean your plate to, get this, to school-age children. They even had to sign a clean plate pledge. Crazy, right? The pledge said, quote, food will win the war. Don't waste it. (laughs) This campaign was used again during the Depression and again in World War II. It's amazing how that messaging got passed down to many of us today, even though we grew up in an environment where food was plentiful instead of scarce. So ask yourself, why is your brain clinging to the idea that wasting is so wrong? Is your brain holding on to a message that got passed down to you through your parents, from their parents before them, and maybe even from their parents before them, when circumstances were really a lot different than what they are today? Never wasting food is an easy rule to live by. It feels like a smart idea. However, it disconnects you from your body and from knowing how much is enough. Finishing your plate or the bag of chips or the bottle of wine leaves those old patterns and stories in your subconscious where it's hard to do anything about them. Examining those thought patterns takes work, and your goals are on the other side of that awareness. Number four on our list of self-sabotaging thoughts is worry. What if I gain it all back? What if I fail again? Ah, yes, my old pal worry. Worry is tomorrow's fear showing up today. Worry is our subconscious mind's way of searching for a guarantee. It's wanting a promise that the end result will be worth it. If you've ever worried whether or not you can keep the weight off, or maybe if you'll backslide again, the fear in the back of your mind is completely normal, and it's okay that it's there. When we push fear away or try to ignore it, it comes in the back door and sabotages our efforts. So instead of pushing fear away, allow it to be there. Liz Gilbert, author of Eat, Pray, Love, talks about fear and anxiety in a way that really resonates for me. She says, fear is allowed to have a voice, but not a vote. Me, courage, and fear, we're all going on an adventure together. Fear is allowed to have a seat, but under no circumstances is it allowed to drive. It's important to address these fears and look at them in the light of day. If you've trained your brain to repeat a pattern of worry or angst, then even if you do lose the weight, your brain will be stuck in the old pattern. It's just a new refrain. It'll worry about whether you can keep the weight off or worry about how long it'll last. Your brain will look for the smallest of mistakes and blow them out of proportion. This is why it is so important to address your mindset when you're embarking on a lifestyle change. 
Who wants to get to their goal and then still feel miserable when they get there? By worrying about your future, you are training yourself not to be happy in the present. Whatever we practice, our brains get really good at repeating. So if you practice not being happy in the present, that is what your brain will know how to do. Let's take an example. Let's say you've lost 10 pounds, but you have more that you want to lose. I bet if I asked you several months ago, how happy would you be if you lost 10 pounds? You'd say very happy. And yet here you are having lost the 10 pounds and worry for tomorrow is stealing your happiness today. Mm. How can you create a narrative that allows for fear to be there and allows courage and self-compassion to be just a little bit bigger, stronger, and louder than that fear? When you do that, you begin to trust yourself and allow yourself to feel great about how far you've come. When those thoughts come up, it's not a problem. It's a signal. It's an invitation to proactively choose a thought that's more constructive and more helpful for you. Brains need supervision and direction. Your brain is a tool and it does what it is told. If you don't deliberately tell it what to do, it'll do what it has always done and create what you've always created. Recognizing that your brain needs supervision and direction on a daily basis is really important. Every time you feel the thought, I can't succeed, or I'm afraid that I'll fail again. Try telling yourself instead, I have no idea what I'm capable of. It doesn't work until it actually works. Have a better conversation with yourself. You won't know if the process works until you do it. If you've got to be scared while you do it, then be scared. That's okay. But having a better conversation with yourself must be the place to start. Because I guarantee you that keeping those old self-loathing thoughts will lead you down the same old path you've always been. Expecting to be fearless is perfectionist thinking. Every time you try something new, there's going to be fear or worry there because it's new. You've never tried it before. The fear is there and it gets a voice, but it doesn't get a vote. Number five on our list of self-sabotaging thoughts is comparison. Quote, comparison is the thief of joy by Teddy Roosevelt. Preach, Teddy! (laughs) While old Teddy may have been absolutely right that comparison really kind of feels like poop, he didn't take into account that it's kind of wired into our DNA to compare ourselves to others. Honestly, until I learned how our human brains naturally compare ourselves to others, that quote has always kind of made me feel a little guilty. As usual, it all goes back to prehistoric times. In the old days, you needed to compare yourself to others to make sure you were fitting in with the tribe. If you didn't fit in and you were left behind, that literally meant death. So it's not my fault that I compare myself to others. Ha ha, in your face, Teddy Roosevelt. However, it does still feel kind of lousy when I compare myself to others and I find myself falling short. That's because in those moments, I'm letting comparison turn my thoughts towards envy. I've seen this show up in myself and my clients in two ways. Number one, disdain for someone who has something you want. Remember when I said that we lived in Guam for a military assignment? If you're not familiar with Guam, it's a teeny tiny island amid a very vast ocean. It's wonderful as long as you're good with constantly being sweaty, sandy, or your hair is messed up by the wind. 
Given those factors, I pretty much wore a baseball hat and workout clothes every day for an entire year. Each day, when I would go to pick up my kids at school, there was this mom there who always looked put together. Here she was looking like she had showered, gasp, and put on makeup, and even brushed her hair. Meanwhile, I looked like a hot, sweaty mess. So my subconscious mind decided that I hated her instantly. By the way, did I mention that she had the perfect body? Yeah, but here's the problem with that. Your brain will never let you become something that you disdain. So my brain got the message that being showered and put together and looking cute for preschool pickup is bad. Therefore, my subconscious mind implemented the operating program titled, We Will Avoid Looking Cute at All Costs. Is that really what I wanted to tell my brain to think about? Of course not. But that's the crazy thing that happens when we try and protect ourselves from comparison by disdaining someone or something that makes us feel less than. Of course, it turns out that cute mom was actually really super nice. (laughs) Figures. Who is someone that you've assumed is to be kind of a skinny, mm, you know what, or maybe thought it's easy for her because she looks the way that you would like to? Bring those thoughts up to the surface where you can see them. Your brain will literally prevent you from becoming something you disdain. So instead, how can you look at this person as someone you can relate to? What do you like about them? How can you humanize them so that whatever they've achieved seems more attainable to your subconscious mind rather than, nope, never going to happen? The second way I've seen this show up is number two, feeling jealous of someone else's progress. For example, being part of a weight loss group can be amazing. It can really help to have the support of others who get it and who are going through the same thing as you. However, I've often had clients that are in group coaching come to me and say, everyone in my group is having more success than I am. I should be losing weight faster. I feel like I'm doing it wrong. I'm so demoralized. Listen, it's human nature to compare ourselves to others. However, using other people's success as evidence of why you can't do it is a sure path to failure. That's bound to make you feel bad and want to quit. So here are a few strategies to help you with comparison. Number one, perspective. When our daughter was in sixth grade, about three quarters of the way through the first semester, she decided that she wanted to try playing trumpet in the band. So we jumped through the hoops to get her transferred into band class, rented her a trumpet and said, follow your dreams, young adventurer. However, when she got into band, she soon felt way behind the other kids because she had never picked up a trumpet before in her life, and these kids had already had a semester, or more, of practice under their belt. When you compare yourself to others, you're often comparing your beginning to someone else's middle. Of course you're not as far along as they are. They've been working at this for longer, or they have different environmental factors going on. There are so many things that make their story different from yours. Comparing yourself to them is like saying apple trees are lame because they don't grow as tall as pine trees. What? That doesn't make any sense. Love yourself enough to give your dream time and space to grow, mature, evolve, and succeed. Number two, eyes on your own paper. My freshman year in college, I was taking an intro to calculus class. As you might imagine, a calculator was an extremely helpful tool for that class. And being the mega nerd that I am, I sat in the front row of my 8 a.m. class to make sure I didn't fall asleep during the lecture. 
One day we were having a quiz and I had forgotten to get my calculator out of my backpack before the quiz began. As I bent over to grab it, and I swear I did not do this on purpose, my gaze sort of kind of brushed past the paper on my neighbor's table. Oh crap, I thought. I so did not mean to do that. Now it looks like I cheated when I was just not paying attention when I bent down to get my stupid calculator. Fortunately, nothing happened. I did not see anything on their page, and the teacher did not bust me for my roving eyes. The moral of the story is, nothing good comes from looking over someone else's shoulders. When you do that, either, A, you question yourself, how is she so much further along than I am? I'm not losing weight fast enough. Or B, you feel just a little bit kind of, sort of, superior to them, and that's not the most jolly of feelings either. Focus on your journey. Someone else's progress, or lack thereof, just isn't relevant to what you're doing. And number three, flip it to inspiration. What if comparison is like looking through binoculars backwards and it makes your goal seem so much farther away? Instead, flip those suckers around and look at your situation in a way that makes your goal seem closer. Use someone else's progress as inspiration. What if you consciously use someone else's success as a way to inspire you? What if their progress is evidence of what's possible? How much better does this thought feel? If they can do it, maybe I can too. Choose thoughts that set you up for success, not failure. Quote, you can't be half envious and half grateful. Dan Sullivan. Comparing yourself to others can be useful if you use it as a source of insight and possibility rather than using it as a weapon against yourself. Envy is demoralizing and gives you a sense of scarcity in the world when someone else's gain is a loss for you. When you find envy creeping in, turn towards gratitude. Be grateful for what that person's accomplishment means for what's possible for you. Be grateful for the ideas that their success can give you and serve you on your path. Someone who is further along the path can be inspiring to you if you cultivate gratitude. There's no competition on the field of gratitude because everyone wins. There's enough for everyone to win and step into their full selves when you use that feeling of envy as an opportunity for gratitude. There is only one of you. When there is only one of something, it literally cannot be compared. You don't have to feel like you need to compare yourself to others because you are literally incomparable. You are a perfect representation of the divine. Number six on our list of self-sabotaging thoughts is vanity. When I met Susan, she was already an accomplished athlete. She had participated in triathlons and enjoyed the idea of competing. However, life had thrown her a few curveballs and she put on about 10 pounds from what she felt like was her ideal weight. When I asked her about her goals, she hesitated. I don't know, she said. I mean, I know I'm still in relatively good shape, and I should feel grateful for that. Whenever I hear a should, that makes me curious. So I said, you know, tell me more about that. Well, it kind of feels vain to want to get so lean and so I can compete again. I already have a really healthy body. Aha, now we're getting somewhere. As we dug deeper, we uncovered an old script in Susan's mind that said, wanting to look good is vain and vanity is bad. 
she realized that she felt selfish if she spent time in pursuit of good looks and it made her feel like she was being kind of superficial. Can you imagine how these thoughts might hold Susan back from feeling good about herself? Over time, her self-judgment made it hard to prioritize taking time for herself to look and feel better. We get very mixed messages from society. It is important to look good. Looking good is a type of currency. And yet, if we think we look good or want to look sexy, then we're egotistical. So you have to look good while not actually thinking you look good. It's a no-win situation. It's understandable to feel just a little bit conflicted about that. Quote, Most have shame triggers around being perceived as self-indulgent or self-focused. We don't want our authenticity to be perceived as selfish or narcissistic. Brene Brown. Here are some questions to consider. Is it selfish to feel confident, at ease in your body, and proud of yourself? What would you tell a young woman, maybe your daughter or a niece, if she wanted to feel confident and proud of herself? Would you tell her that she is selfish? How does feeling confident in your body free you up to live authentically and bring your best self into the world? Wanting to look good is not egotistical. It's wanting to show up in the world as your best self. There is nothing wrong with that. Bringing your full self into the world and offering your gifts with confidence is one of the most valuable things you can do in this life. If you ever felt like Susan and worried that wanting to look good makes you look selfish, how can you examine the thoughts about superficiality and selfishness and realize that those are possibly someone else's scripts that you learned from somewhere else? Maybe they're not your truth. You can choose your own truth. What would you like to believe about what it means to care for your body and care about your appearance? And finally, the number seven most common self-sabotaging thought is permission. Sarah leaned in close and said, my biggest struggle is with permission. Just feeling like it's okay to take time for myself can be a big hurdle sometimes. Sarah is the mom of two girls, wife to a husband that works about 72 hours a week to support their family, and oh, by the way, she also owns her own business. Needless to say, Sarah is a busy gal. Like so many of us, Sarah is a doer, a helper. She is the one that makes sure that everyone is taken care of. If a ball drops, she's on it. If a kid is sick, she is nursing them back to health. On top of that, She knows all sorts of science about the body and how food impacts her cells and her hormones. But when it comes to taking action, all that knowledge ain't got nothing in the face of the demands and stressors of life. When there's always someone in need or something that needs to get done, how can Sarah decide to say, no, I am not helping you fix this thing right now because I'm taking care of me? How do we give ourselves permission to put ourselves first? or even permission to allow ourselves to feel good with self-care, like massage, anyone? When Sarah and I talked through this, she said, I feel like I don't deserve it. Like, why should I be better or bigger than my family in terms of my priorities? Sarah also had a deep faith in God and a servant's heart. So I asked her, how would God answer that question about why should you be higher in your family in terms of priorities? That made her pause. I've never thought of it that way before. Even longer pause. Wow. I think God would say that I'm his beloved child 
and just as much as anyone else's in my family. Why should I deserve any less than any of them? And yet another long pause. Holy cow! I could even say that God would tell me that I am his divine instrument. I am beautifully and wonderfully made, handcrafted by him. The Bible even says that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Who am I to say that God is wrong? Wow, what a powerful moment. All the knowledge, all the science, all the guilt and shame that Sarah had accumulated over the years did not have the power to overcome her story that she needed to put everyone else first. It was her commitment to God that helped her see that she not only has permission to say no to other things in favor of caring for herself, she is commanded to do so by her faith. With God, all things are possible. And sometimes we need to realize that loving and caring for ourselves is an act of love and care and obedience to God as well. Quote, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? 1 Corinthians 6.19 Sometimes the hardest part is to receive. You know that feeling when you give your child or someone you love a gift? It is so fun to watch as he or she opens their present. It feels so good to see them love it and get really excited about it. What if God is like that with us? When we don't give ourselves permission to receive, we're like that kid who gets a gift and says, oh, um, thanks, but I don't really need this. And actually, I kind of need to be doing my homework instead. What a downer. What if everything in your life, yes, including your body, is like a present from God on Christmas morning and he just can't wait to see your eyes light up and feel your joy and reveling in the awesomeness of his gift. How does God feel when he gives you a gift and you're like, oh, I don't deserve this. Receiving is supposed to feel good. What if each day is an opportunity to be that kid who is just so excited about their gifts and make God feel really awesome at the same time? Quote, but put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. 1 Timothy 6.17 Okay, great, but how? I've already got too much on my plate. Where and when am I going to find the time to take care of me? I get it. Life is busy. There always seems to be something going on or something extra that derails any tiny bit of progress you might have had going. Someone is sick, the sink is leaking, you're trying to sell your house, whatever. It can get overwhelming. And yet we never ask for help. We just say, I'm so stressed out. I don't know about you, but I am much more comfortable offering help than asking for help. Why is that? I mean, it feels good to help. That makes sense. But maybe it feels just a teensy bit vulnerable to ask for help. And I might have to give away a little bit of my Scarlett O'Hara drama of, oh, I did so much today. Woe is me. Yeah, my husband has been very clear on just how humorous he finds that act of martyrdom. Yeah, I'm trying to work on it. Anywho, if you love to help others, how do you think others feel when they get to help you? Usually they feel pretty darn awesome. 
It's part of our human nature to want to help. Helping intrinsically makes us feel good. By allowing someone to help you, you are giving them the gift of feeling good, feeling useful, feeling needed. Everyone wants to feel needed. How can you shift your thoughts away from, I am a burden to others if I ask for help, and towards, by asking for help, I'm giving someone an opportunity to feel amazing. By asking for help, we ask others to share their gifts with us and give them a chance to be in service. That can be a really beautiful thing. Not only that, but how do you show up when you feel a little like you're doing everything and you're exhausted all the time and taking on everything on your shoulders? How do your loved ones want you to show up for them? Tired and resentful or refreshed and present? What would happen if you took time for yourself? Who would you be when you show up for others after taking time to care for yourself? It doesn't serve you or your loved ones to think of taking time for yourself as taking away from them. It doesn't serve you or them to tell yourself that there is something more valuable you quote should be doing instead of taking care of you. What if by putting yourself first, you're being better to those you love? What if asking for help and allowing yourself to be helped so that you can take care of yourself is the best gift you can give them? You charge your phone every night because you know if you don't, the battery will run out and render it useless. Shouldn't you get the same chance to recharge too? We've all heard the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Most of my life, I view that from the perspective of be nice to other people. But as I've grown older, it seems like a lot of people, women especially, are able to be nice to others, but not to themselves. What if the commandment is telling you to love yourself in the same way that you love others? You have something special only you can bring to the world. By taking care of yourself, you are giving yourself permission to be all of you and bring your unique light to shine on others in your special way.